Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Nova, and Nova was raised by covert and overt abusive parents. It's a story of generational trauma, smear campaigns, terror, and becoming your own abuser. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I'm Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning in to this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently and you want to be a guest on our show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Fill out that guest form and we will go from there. Another thing at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com is our brand new community support forum. It's our own safe social network. Our community members are on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings. We have prompt workbooks for our episodes for you to dig deeper and get more clarity into your relationships and life. You can create and run your own events from meditations to closure ceremonies to single mom groups. Anything and everything is possible on there as far as interests go and connecting with people who have gone through the same thing just like you. We had a closure ceremony the other day. We had a blast doing it. And our community members on there are all amazing. And they're here to support you when needed and to cheer you on when needed too. You may come looking for support, but I guarantee you will make tons of friends in the process. So join our community today at NarcissistApocalypse.com. At top of the page, you'll see the community support button. Press that button and we will support you from there. And for the people 
who are still on our old network, that which was our Patreon, who have not received my email. You were supposed to get an email. There's a bunch of you that haven't ported over yet. Either go look for that email or just go to our site and sign up there and then cancel your membership at our Patreon. So for those people, just in case you are not receiving your messages. And, you know, we have become friends with a place called domesticshelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. Domesticshelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing. So if you need to connect with local resources and find ways to heal and move forward, please visit domesticshelters.org to access their free resource. And everyone, so this show, our groups and support services are paid for on a shoestring budget. So if you think that what we offer with this podcast is valuable to you, please consider sponsoring one of our episodes. It will help us grow our support services and to reach a larger audience. Sponsoring an episode of this podcast is a way to make a really big difference and you'll be helping thousands of survivors in the process. And today's episode is sponsored by Kin3, a women's empowerment jewelry company that is co-owned by two sisters. And one of these sisters is a longtime listener to this show. And she wants to thank all of the brave people who have shared their stories with our audience. Kin3 offers a unique opportunity for you to connect to your story. Each Kin3 jewelry design delivers a different message and has meaning behind it that will inspire you every day. Whether you're celebrating yourself or encouraging someone else, Kin3 has the right piece of jewelry just for you. Every piece comes in a decorative drawer box, making the gift-giving process even easier. And listeners of this podcast, Narcissist Apocalypse, will get 10% off at kin3.com by using the code SURVIVOR10 at checkout. And I'll have all that information in our description of this show. And I've seen this jewelry. It's beautiful jewelry. It's great for gifts. It's great for yourself. And I got to speak to one of the owners of this company and she's a beautiful person. It's a great company, a great message. So please support Kin3 as they support us and they support you. So a big thank you to them. And now, without further ado, here is my episode with Nova. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Nova. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. We chatted for a little bit, got to know each other. And now, as well, as much as, as we could in, in that amount of time. And, and now we're going to hear your story. And yours is a family story. And you had two abusive parents. One was more covert and one was more overt or malignant. And and you had to deal with both. You had to deal with an older sister as well who became a mirror image of uh, one of your parents. So you have not had the easiest life. And we're also going to speak about addiction. 
and I, I love talking about addiction as well. So, uh, you know, thank you for being here. Unfortunately, you're here. You're, I know you're going to help a lot of people who have been in these situations. So without uh, further ado, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And Nova, the floor is now yours. Um, so I guess I'll start with, you know, my story kind of starts before I was born in the sense that both my parents are products of their raising. Like their parents were, both sets of their parents were incredibly violent in both emotional and physical ways. They were psychologically very damaging and created these people that saw no reason to stop that kind of treatment. Like they both got married when they were 23 and they just thought this is what's expected of me. I get married, I have children, I abuse my wife and children, and then they'll have kids and do the same thing. And (laughs) I decided it ends with me and I'm working really, really hard to not fulfill this horrible prophecy that was thrown upon me. But um, my, I guess it starts with my older sister was born and my mom was 17. And of course it was a big deal, but at the same time, my grandma was about that age when she had my mom. So it wasn't like that crazy. And my mom just, she's a difficult person. I think she was born this way and she was then created by by the environment. So it's like the nature and nurture conversation. And she just resented my older sister from birth. And that's their whole thing. And she's the one that is the most narcissistic, the most abusive. But she had my mom, as she would call it, for about six years until I was born. And I was my dad's first child. My parents were married for less than a year when I was born. And they both told me separately that they would have split when my younger sister was born, but she was born and it was the late eighties and you don't do that shit. You get married and you stick it out. And so unfortunately for the rest of us, they stuck it out. And so for the entire nineties, they were together and it was just terrible. (laughs) I mean, um, my dad was your classic American dad where he would go to work and he would come home for dinner and he would leave his plate on the table when he left and talk to no one. And my mom was the primary caregiver and she absolutely hated it. She did not want anything to do with us. Her neglect was complete. Um, we were only given amount of food that she felt was necessary for us. Um, we were small children and my older sister, um, she was our second, she was the Lieutenant. She was taking care of us mostly me and my younger sister. And, um, she also hated us (laughs) from birth. So did did, did your sister resent you like just because of of her role? Yes. 100%. She blamed us for a, taking away mom from her and be existing. Therefore we need to be taken care of. Like we were just like from our existence, a problem. And my younger sister and I are two years apart. So they just kind of lumped us together, whether we liked it or not. And, um, 
we were just mouths to feed people that were annoying. So we learned to not have any needs, not ask for help, not make noise and just kind of watch TV all day and not make waves, which is easy when you're a kid because you're just trying to survive. And they would scream and throw things and have tantrums with each other or with us. You never knew which way the wind was blowing. So you're in this constant state of terror and confusion because you're still a kid and you're having to do everything a kid has to do, go to school, blah, blah, blah. And also they're isolating us. Like we weren't allowed to have friends. We weren't allowed to have like after school things because they would complain the whole time about how much work it was to take us to these things. Oh my God, such a big deal. And, you know, I think like, I want to say that, you know, my childhood was a little better than my, my teenage time because I, A, don't remember a lot of it. I have severe gaps in my memory and B, they just didn't really notice us too much when we were kids. Like we were just so away from their thought process. And so we were, we were less than nothing. And then with my mom, her, <laughs> her most, she had the most fun when she was psychologically messing with us. And she would do this in a lot of different ways. Like she would do it directly to us because we're children and you can't, it's easy to screw with kids or she would do it by proxy and she would set us up with other people and kind of say something to us. And then we would respond as a child does. And then other people would just be like, Oh, that's kind of weird. And then we would be embarrassed and my mom would be so excited. <laughs> she would love to watch us squirm and be uncomfortable and be upset and we'd be in public I mean, we couldn't say anything because we didn't get it worse once the car door shut. And she just, she loved to, like, the smear campaign with my mom started early, like, before we were even able to talk for ourselves. So people had this idea that me and my younger sister were um, dumb, argumentative, and just lazy. And so, and she would call us all these things all the time. We were lazy ingrates. You have no idea how much energy it takes to take care of you. I can't wait till you can take care of yourself. And I'm seven and I'm like, me too, man. Me too. <laughs> I can't wait until I get out of this shit. Cause it's so hard. And even as a kid knowing like, this is wrong. Like something about this feels really wrong. I don't like my mom. I've never liked my mom. Like she has been rejecting from the beginning. Like she told, especially for me, like I was the scapegoat for my mom from basically birth because all I heard about, even as like a small, small kid was Nova, you are the worst baby. <laughs> you all you did was cry all you want to do is be held it was the worst your sisters were such better babies you were the worst and it's just like she once told me she's like the only reason i didn't kill you as a kid was because you were so cute and it's like gee thanks ma that's really nice and um her just her earworms like she just she was the primary caregiver. And when you are in that position, you have absolute control. And she loved that. That was her 
that was her catnip. That was that's what she wanted. It's like she was abused as a child in every way you can think of. And now she gets to be the abuser. And it, and it really made her happy. It made her feel real good because nobody knew she can hide it from everyone and still be the cool, fun person that she was to everyone else. And then she'd come home and just torture us and neglect us and just be the most emotionally cold and distant person. Like medically she neglected us. Like I had a bunch of earaches as a kid. She would just ignore me when I would ask for help in the middle of the night and I'd have to figure it out. Like when we like got flip, were sick, we a, had to really prove we were sick to stay home because she just didn't want to have to deal with it. And if we were sick enough, we just took care of ourselves. My younger sister, she's had to pick, clean up her own puke when she was a kid. She had to sleep in like beds with pee in it. Like my mom just didn't want to be a mother. She didn't want to care for anyone except for herself and try to keep her relationship with my dad going, which was never in a good place. So at this point, you know, let's say you're seven years old, your sister's, mm-hmm. your younger sister is five. Mm-hmm. Your relationship with your younger sister at this point, are you comforting her? Are you guys a little team? No, not at all. I was for, you know, <laughs> I look back on me personally and like, I should have been taken to a therapist probably around five or six because I was the most angry seven-year-old you've ever met in your life. <laughs> like I was violent. I would beat up my younger sister. I would just, I had, it was a lot of things at once. Like my dad has an explosive, terrorizing, horrible temper that he got from his mother. And I have that too. The only difference between him and I is that he did not, he was not shamed for it from birth because I was a girl and I had a temper. It was just not happening. Like you're not allowed to be angry. You're not allowed to show emotion, let alone an emotion so explosive as that. So I was shamed really early on by it, which of course doesn't help. (laughs) So pretty much here, you're seven years old and you're not allowed to have a voice. You're not allowed to have emotions. Mm -mm. You're not allowed to have your own feelings. You're Mm -mm. not allowed to have friends really, or do any extracurricular activities. Mm -mm. You have no trust of anyone in your home at this point of your life you and your younger sister are not really friends Uh, who knows who knows what your sister's opinion of you at that time even even though you guys are friends now uh Mm -hmm. you know that must have taken a lot of healing and and we'll get there but at this point you don't really have an identity of any sort except that you're angry Mm -hmm. and you do know why, but as you're a kid, you don't really understand everything that's going on and you have no concept of normal. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to school and you see these other kids and what their lives are like, are you thinking they must deal with the same thing as well? Cause you're not really privy to what their home life is like. I never, I don't even think it went that far. Like it was just, I never questioned anything. And also I was, even as a kid, I always gravitated towards people who had rough home lives too. 
So, like, we were, like, the island of misfit toys. Like, we'd just kind of be little weirdos on the side. We'd be like, man, my home life is crazy. And they'd be like, shit, me too. <laughs> so, it's kind of like, I always gravitate towards people who kind of have it a little, who have a, maybe a chip on their shoulder or just, like, you can just tell that they are dealing with a lot. Even if they don't know what it is or, like, me who couldn't vocalize it or even understand it enough to vocalize it, you could tell. And um, the one thing... The only reason that I'm here able to have any sort of perspective and not be like my parents or my sister is because of my maternal grandparents. They, um, they lived across the street from me when I was a kid and they were horrible to my mom and her siblings. Like I can never say they weren't, they were physically violent. My grandpa was a very violent alcoholic. My grandmother was a manic depressive woman and they were the most stable people in my life. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, so, do you, so do you think that they were good to you in response to, I know our daughter will hate this? No, I don't think it was like that. Like my older sister, um, she's been a difficult person also from birth, but people have, she's the golden child. So she's been allowed to be difficult and people have actually like honed it and fostered it for her. And it's because her dad isn't part of the deal. And they're just like, oh my God, that's so terrible. And I was like, no, she's terrible actually as a person. But so my older sister, my, my grandma was only like in her thirties when she was born. So she was kind of like, my uncle was 12 when she was born. So she was kind of like the fourth kid in the house. And so she actually had to deal with them more as parents than grandparents. So by the time I came along, something had switched with them. And I think it like in, in, in hindsight, um, my mom and her siblings have always hated my grandma because she was mentally ill and loved my grandpa because he was physically violent and horrible. I've never quite understood why, but um, me and my younger sister, we clung to grandma because she was nice to us. Like she would take care of us and she would do things for us that specifically we told her like, hey, I like Pop-Tarts. And all of a sudden there's Pop-Tarts everywhere in the house. Or I like to paint and she'd buy me paints. Like they were nice to us and we let them. Me and my younger sister were just so starving for affection and love, which we got to a certain extent with my dad, but not my mom. My mom was an ice block at best. And my grandma, who had been without probably any real affection towards her for a long time because her kids are terrible. Um, when we came along, she kind of was like, okay, these two little girls, you know, they're two years apart. We have to watch them because, you know, that's, that's the deal. My grandma didn't work back in the day. That was possible. And, um, you know, they just, 
they took care of us. They loved us. They took us places. They showed us things like anything that was free in the area we went to. <laughs> and, you know, they took us to the, like my grandpa was really, really, really loved nature. And so we went out into nature and we learned about counting tree rings and being outside and, 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 and loving the land we live on, like loving the ocean and the mountains and the, all the stuff. And so on one hand, I have this horrible home life that I, to which there is no escape. And then every other weekend, we'd go across the street and go stay with my grandparents. And on Sundays, they'd buy us donuts. And sometimes that we lived somewhere very, it's very cold here. So they would, <laughs> the heater was broken. So they just opened the oven and let the heat fill the house. Like they were old, old, like depression era time people. And so it was, but it was conditional. Like everything around us, the love was conditional and they would never overstep their bounds to my parents because they respected the role of parents. So like as much as they were there for us, they couldn't help us. No one was going to help us. And I know this now, but like, as a kid, they were such a savior to me. Like, I didn't know what the difference was between me and other kids, but I knew it was there. And I watched a shit ton of TV and I knew my life wasn't like theirs. Like I didn't live like Clarissa did. Like my mom wasn't nice like that. My dad didn't give a shit. So it's kind of like, okay. Who's Clarissa? Clarissa explains it all from Nickelodeon. Okay, I was not privy to that era of TV. <laughs> Someone will get that. Um, so I would say, like, for me, my life starts to get hard when I'm six. Like, it starts to become more complicated. And um, and then when I was nine, my older sister moved in with my grandparents and left our house because she was having what I would call power struggles with my dad. So my dad was not her dad and he was a son of a bitch. Like he was a dick to me and I'm his kid. He's going to be worse to someone who's not his kid. And so I, um, I don't know if you have this in Canadia, but outdoor ed, every fifth grade, you go for a week with your class to camp for a week. Oh yeah. We have, we have that here. Awesome. So I went to outdoor ed and I come back and the house is destroyed. And I turned to my, my younger sister and I'm like, dude, what happened? And she's like, oh, they went crazy again. And I was like, explain. My dad threw everything around the house and the screaming, like both of them like could be opera singers because they can hit a pitch that is unreal. And I was, and I see my older sister and she's packing. And I was like, my first thought was, Wow. My second thought was yay. <laughs> Cause my older sister would, she would lock me and my younger sister up upstairs in our room all summer. Like she would not want to deal with us. And she was terrifying to us. We were terrified of her. We were basically terrified of both our parents in different ways, but we also were terrified of, we were younger kids. She was like 14, 15. And, um, she would lock us upstairs and uh, give us cans of tuna. And 
we would just, and we would try to devise a plan. We would tie our sheets together <laughs> and open the window and take the, uh, the screen off. And it's a two-story fall to a concrete side of the house. And we calculated and tried to think, like, if we go down this and don't fall and die, we can run the two blocks to Grandma's house. And then we'd be safe. But we never did it because we were smart. And uh, sometimes we were allowed to uh, sneak across the hall to our parents' room and watch TV in there. But sometimes she'd catch us and she would just haul ass up the stairs and just corral us back in our room and shut the door. And my mom knew and she didn't care. Like my dad, if my dad knew, I think he would have been upset. But we were so terrified because she had so much control over us. Sorry, my older sister. Sorry. And um, so when she left, it was like, peace out, man. (laughs) Like. You are just terrible. I've always been so awful to us. You've always blamed us for everything. And, you know, we did it like the three of us did all the cooking and we did all the cleaning in the house. Like we cleaned the bathrooms, the living room, the garage. We took care of the kitchen and the cats that we had at the time. So when she left, it came back to me and my younger sister. Like all the work and the cleaning came down to us. And, um, but even that was a trade-off that I was willing to take for not being locked in my room all summer. You know, all I wanted to do was watch TV and play with my Barbies. And I couldn't do that because <laughs> she would make sure of that. And um, so when she left, it was like, nice. But the difference at that point was, um, by that point, my dad was traveling a lot for work. He'd be gone for two weeks, back for a week, gone for three weeks, back for three weeks, gone for a month. And my mom handled this by coming home at 3 p.m., going to bed, and then we wouldn't see her all day. And so we would, she would buy us TV dinners, and so we would make TV dinners. And um, I've been cooking since I was about eight or nine. So I started cooking really early on because I wanted to have more control. Like, feel like my life was so much about, like, I just want just a sliver of control in some way. So, and the fact that... Sorry, so before we get to the control aspect of things, I had one question for you about, I guess, this time of your life. Mm-hmm. Are you retreating inward in the sense of, uh, you know whatever hope you have of some sort of future as a, as a little kid, what are you daydreaming about? What are your kind of dreams that kind of go on in your head of uh, what your life might be like later on? And uh, do you have like little fantasies? Do you have imaginary friends? Like how are you coping in this time period? Cause it's a lot for you to handle and you're not getting it from other people besides your grandparents in a little way. So are you able to somewhat give yourself hope as a child? No. I had TV. We watched TV from the minute we woke up to the minute we went to bed. And I always say I was raised by TV and it's not a lie. I 
I'm a, I'm a class A disassociator. Like I can disassociate like nobody's business. And I've probably been doing it for a lot longer than I even think about because I've just been in situations where the terror is so high and you're just a kid and you have no control and you're just in it and there's no place to go. And you know that deep down, you know, there's nowhere for you to go. So you go inward and I lived in movies like, you know, I've been, I've never had any censorship of any kind. So like there was once I was like three or four being put down for a nap and they put on the TV and it was Poltergeist. And I was like, that's my favorite movie. <laughs> and so I would just be watching Poltergeist and I would be in these characters. Like if I was watching The Shining, I was in the Overlook. If I was watching like, like um, Clueless. I was living in Beverly Hills above sunset. Like, you know, it's, you find ways to cope in, in, in ways that you're not even conscious of. And so we would, my younger sister and I, while we weren't close, we only had each other. Like that was, that was kind of a cornerstone of, of our experience. And we always say to each other, like, while we were in the same house, we had two very different experiences. Like we were in the same house, but different rooms. Like it was just the separation, the isolation from the world was extreme. And TV was the only view out. So like at that age, at like nine, I didn't have any idea of the future because I was, I had to live in the moment to be ready, like constant vigilance. Like it was, it was all the time. So who, so, so who were your, uh, TV parents? <laughs> Fran Fine. From who, the nanny. Fran Fine? Oh, from, oh, from the nanny, Fran Drescher? <laughs> yes. I loved The Nanny. We actually watched a lot of classic TV. So like Bewitched was one of my favorites. So I really loved Bewitched because she was so nice to, to, she was so nice. And it was like, man, like, look, she's nice to her husband and she's nice to her, to to Tabitha. And I I want that. (laughs) Like I didn't, it's like also, um, again, watching movies that also have kind of, we watched more movies than we did TV, actually. And um, we watched a lot of female-driven comedies because we have a house of three women, four women, and one dude. Like, I've lived in a world of women, and it's been fantastic. And, um, <laughs> like, yeah, at that point, I was not reading yet. Reading became a big part of my survival later. But at the time we didn't, I mean, we didn't have any toys, like whatever toys or thing we had were given to us for Christmas or for a birthday. Like they didn't just buy us stuff. Like it was, we had very little, we didn't have a lot of clothes. Our clothes were holy and dirty. Um, you know, we just, we were told all the time how we were such ungrateful of what we had. And like, we have like very, very little. Well, they had all the things that they needed. Me and me and my younger sister, we were given just a bare minimum. And like when I started sixth grade was after my older sister had moved out. And so on the first day I went to my mom and I said, Hey, 
I don't have any clothes. I don't have any notebooks. I don't have any pencils. And she's like, why didn't you tell me school was starting today? And I was like, because I'm nine. <laughs> I don't read the mail. <laughs> so I went to my first day of middle school in my mom's jeans. Because she's a tiny woman. And um, I, I had to ask people for paper and for pencils. I didn't have anything because they were too preoccupied with their own shit to even notice. And so by the time I was in middle school, a couple of things happened. Um, my dad's traveling up. To, he started um, actively cheating in other countries which I learned later. And then my mom possibly had her own affairs, which would be like, also they're both very unreliable narrate narratives. So I don't know what is actually true. Um, so it was when nine 11 happened, I was 13 and my dad actually worked in the airline business. So he lost his job because of it. And um, that's kind of, where I pinpoint was the catalyst to the immense change that was about to happen. So before this, he was not around and I got used to him not being around because when he was, he was awful. Like he would pick him up from the airport and he would just be screaming at us and he'd be tired. And so he would just be, his fuse would be very short. Any little thing would be enough to just, arise in him a fury that could not be quelled by anything. You really just had to ride it out. And my mom, even with her viciousness, would cower to it to a certain extent. And he would cower to her viciousness when it got out of control for her. So, like, for each other, um, <laughs> they're so similar yet so different. Like, they're, I always used to tell them they were cut from the same cloth. And they would get so angry with me because <laughs> they hate each other so much. And it's like, you guys are so similar, but the, the, your modus operandi is very different. And um, so when he lost his job, he was home all the time. And he starts to really notice that I'm growing up. Like, I'm 13. And I start to develop early on. And they become really fixated on my physical body. And they over-sexualized me really early on, which was really confusing because I was 13. And already getting a lot of unwanted attention by people and not knowing how to handle it. And they just made it worse and be like, this is your fault. This is good. Also, you should be happy about it, which is so confusing. And um, so there's just a lot going on. And... There was, uh, it was in 2000 and either 2001 or 2002, I forget. Um, my room was on the bottom floor of the house. And so my parents were out and they come back and all I hear, I'm sleeping and I hear just like screaming. So I open the door and my mom is standing there and her face is covered in blood and there's blood all over the floor. And I'm just like, cue panic attack. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. I learned later that they had gone to a party of some sort, gotten really drunk, and my dad beat her up in the car. And 
she comes out and I wake up and I'm not knowing what to do. And he's just full on roaring through the house. He kicks our dog down the stairs. Like he's just completely lost it. And then the next day, everything's fine. Nobody says anything. Nobody does anything. My mom goes stays with my aunt for a couple days and then she comes back and it was just like nothing happened. They cleaned up the blood and everything was good. And I was having what I would definitely see now was PTSD from it. Like I couldn't sleep. I was starting to self-harm. I was starting to cut at that time. I was starting to have an eating disorder. Like it all kind of came at a head after that. And then it got even worse when um, they started to really hone in on me, like just tear me down and scream at me all the time and tell me what shit I was or just completely ignore me for days. And I, I didn't know what was going on and how to fix it. And so um, I just did a lot of gray rocking, which I now see like, you know, when you're dealing, especially with my dad, because he was so terrifying. Like, my mom just almost didn't feel like I was worth it enough to bitch at, but my dad did. My dad sure as hell did. And there was once I was I was eating dinner by myself in the living room on the couch. And I don't know why he just came up to me and started screaming at me. And he's like, hit me. Just come on and hit me. I know you want to. And I just, like, was like, no. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Just thinking like, what the fuck are you going to do with me after that, bitty? Like, man, no, you are not. I am not that dumb. And he just went upstairs and I was just like shaking on the couch being like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know what I'm doing wrong or how to mitigate these experiences, but they were happening and I had to deal with it. And I'm going to school and I'm telling people what's going on. They're like, damn, dude, that's crazy. And I'm like, no, it's it's a lot worse than it sounds. So <laughs> earlier when I interrupted you, and now I'm going to interrupt you again. Uh, yes. But earlier when I interrupted you, we were about to talk about control. Mm -hmm. And so we're now in your teenage years. Mm -hmm. And as far as control goes, what are you able to control about your life in some ways that you weren't able to do before and what ways are you still struggling and are some of those forms of control that you do have such as self-harm worse for you or you're not realizing that those things are going to be a little bit more harmful toward you as your life goes on well I have two answers. Um, I started to drink when I was like 13. I used to like go up to the liquor cabinet and just like swig gin, which is terrible. I hate gin. And uh, I started smoking cigarettes. Um, started cutting, of course. I, a few times, like I was having a lot of suicide ideation. Like I was suicidal to a very high degree and I would, we always had like Costco size of everything. So we had like a big bottle of Tylenol and I was like, all I have to do is take all of this and I'll die and it'll be great. <laughs> Just, you know, I was, I was 13 and I was 14, 13, 14. And like, 
another thing was that I had, it was 2001, so I had my first cell phone. And so I would uh, take the bus after school to a mall, and I would just walk around this dead mall for hours until, like, 6. And then I would reluctantly take the bus home, so just so I didn't have to go home. And I would be by myself, and I would have my CD player playing Backstreet Boys, and I would just, like, try to not have to deal with it for a little bit longer. Who was your favorite Backstreet Boy? Uh, Nick Carter, duh. (laughs) (laughs) You you chose, sorry, you chose the one with mm -hmm. the biggest family problems. I know, I know. Believe me, it's a, it's a, it's a something that I will do later in life with my men. <laughs> Duly noted. It's terrible. Um, so when I was uh, 14, it was Grammy night. It was February. I'm very good with dates, which is helpful. Um, my dad was screaming at me in the living room and I just wanted to like not be in the room. And so I threw the remote on the couch and it bounced off the couch onto the wood floor and exploded into a thousand pieces. And my dad plays sports. So the 10 feet from the couch to my door, he went 20 feet from the other side of the room and caught me by my neck and just starts choking me. And he opens the door with me and throws me on the bed by my neck. And he picks up my CD player, which was on the bed, and he smashes it into the ground in an explosion of pieces. Just the CD, everything. Starts ripping off my Backstreet Boy posters off the wall. And he's screaming and he's just yelling and how awful I am and what's wrong with me. And I'm on the bed trying to breathe trying to stay calm, knowing that I can't say anything, knowing that in this moment when his temper is this high, you cannot move, you cannot speak, you cannot do anything. So I would usually find a position or something behind them, like a snow globe, and I would be inside the snow globe. And I would just tell myself, you are in Paris, near the Eiffel Tower, with glitter everywhere, and you were not here. And I would, that's how I would calm myself down. That's how I would keep from losing it, because if I did, it would only make it worse. And sometimes survival is picking your battles. And my mom came downstairs because of screaming and just stood behind him and nodded and said, yeah, yeah, <laughs> behind him. And... Then they left, and they're like, go wash the dishes. And I was like, that's totally on brand. (laughs) So I'm washing dishes, and they're like, what are we going to do with her? She's so crazy that we should send her away. And I'm 14 in freshman year of high school thinking, like, I don't want to be away from my friends. I had a terrible boyfriend at the time, or it wasn't a full boyfriend. And I just, like, didn't didn't want to leave. But at the same time, I was just like, maybe that's not so bad. And nothing came of it. My depression, which was already very severe by that point, I was in a severe depression group. 
<laughs> it just got worse because like I asked for therapy. I wanted therapy and they finally gave it to me. The only problem was the therapist, my group therapy was in the city, which was about 30 minutes away from my house, 20 minutes, like without traffic. And the entire drive to my group therapy, my mother or father would just tell me how inconvenient this was, how stupid we were doing this. This is not going to help you. What are, what's wrong with you? Why do you need stuff? Why are you like this? So by the time I got to this group, I was like ready to jump off the bridge. <laughs> and then I would have to wait. I know my mom or dad had to wait an hour for me in the city, which they hate. My mom hates the city. And they would drive me home and do the same thing. And so there was, there was no relief anywhere. And, uh, it just, it just kept escalating and in the house, like their marriage was terrible and it was only getting worse. And it's this feeling of escalation. You can feel it coming in the air at night. <laughs> like it's just palpable. The air is thick. The tension is high and you're a kid and you're, you know, what this feels like is you, know, you felt it before when things were really going crazy. Like, and I personally was getting to the end of my rope. Like I didn't have much rope left. I once went to a group and they're like, can you promise us you won't kill yourself tonight? And I was like, I don't know, dude, we'll see what happens. Like I just was, when I was 15, was when things it, it's a turning point because I hit rock bottom and I didn't see any way out and I was getting ready to really I really really wanted to die like I was I was done I didn't have I didn't have enough in me to keep going there was nothing for me in this world like it felt like I was never getting out of this. They were never going to change. I was never going to be good enough or smart enough or anything because of all the things. And so as like a Hail Mary, I went to my high school and I put my name on the guidance counselor list. And so they called me in towards the end of the day. And I told them, I was like, so my dad is crazy. He's beating up my mom and I need you to get her and my younger sister out. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, you need to get them out. I'm good. I'm done. Like, there's no saving me. I'm not here for me. I am done. I am done. Like... And then they're like, what are you, like, what happened with you? I'm like, oh yeah, he choked me this one time and threw things at me. And they're like, whoa, 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 back up. <laughs> and I'm like, this is impertinent to why I'm here. So because I mentioned the abuse that I experienced, which was child abuse, um, they called the cops, which was not my intention. I didn't, it was just, it was a, it was a cry for help. And so the next, that night I'm on my computer in the garage and a cop knocks on the door 
And my mom opens it and it was like, can I speak to Sova? And I'm like, hi, <laughs> I was like 15. And um, he asks me about the abuse and I tell him, he turns to my mom and asks, has he been abusive to you? And she said, no. And he left and my dad comes down and he is furious, like full on rage. Because I broke, I broke the cardinal rule of an abusive household. You talked. Like, we had CPS come to visit me and my younger sister at our respective schools when I was about 11. And they asked us if we were abused, and we lied. And we said no, because that's what you do. You lie. And I told the truth this time. And so he he's like, you're not my daughter. You're not my child. And it's just like, whatever. And my mom turns to me and my younger sister, who are 15 and 12, and asks us, do you want to leave the house? And I was like, dear God in heaven, yes. And it was like two days after Halloween. (laughs) So I took my bag of candy in my backpack and we bounced. We drove two blocks to my grandparents' house. And... That's why my parents got divorced, was because of that. And um, they didn't tell other people why they split, because it involved me and the abuse that they have done to me. So nobody knows this. They think that it's because my dad was abusive to my mom. But it's like, no, she actually didn't want to leave because of that. That seemed fine to her. And I begged her to get me out of the house. And I, I cried and I begged her, please get me out. And she just completely ignored me, just walked over me as I'm crying on her floor. Like, it was not about me in any way. But she told people that was why. And it's like, no, you actually never cared. And I banked on that hardcore because it's a guarantee. And we moved in with my grandparents, which to a certain extent at the time was kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire because my mom basically was like, I don't have to parent anymore, (laughs) which was a huge relief for her. And my dad went the opposite direction and he really wanted a relationship with us. But me and he hated him and were terrified of him. So, It was a double whammy. My mom knew how much we didn't want to be around my dad and forced us to because she got a lot of pleasure out of how unhappy we were. And my dad got what he wanted just out of that. So there was uh, supervised visitations to which he would go nuts then. Um, We'd have lunch where, where he would go nuts and in public, like towards the end of their, their marriage, like they would just like go crazy in public and everyone would see. And it was just like, this is horrible. I'd be hiding behind a menu in a Chinese restaurant. It's like, can you guys keep it together through the appetizer? That's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> and um, by the time we moved in with my grandparents, I was, I have very little memory of my, of ages 15 to 16 because of all of this. Like my high school years are pretty, pretty stark in my mind. And so like when we moved to my grandparents' house, we went to school the next day and no one talked about it. And it was just, we weren't given 
any sort of breathing room. We were sleeping on an air mattress. And, like, just go back to school. Nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. Keep going. And that was, like, the main thing. You could not stop for anything. You had to keep going. You had to keep your mouth shut and be strong. So that's why I'm just, like, I, I, feel my, I find myself to be very strong. And it wasn't by my choice. I had to be. There was no, like, oh, I can't get out of bed. I was never allowed to have that autonomy. Like, I had to do things. And that's why, to this day, I can force myself physically to do almost anything. And I will suffer for it later. But, like, if I'm really exhausted and I have to do three more things, I will do those three more things. Because that's how I'm trained. It's just like being a workhorse for everyone else despite what it does to you is the party line and after they split neither side of the family really knew how to handle it it was the first divorce for both of them and uh it was kind of like the quiet years after they split like my grandparents my my, my grandmother had manic episodes and she would hone in on me because narcissists, they find the ones who will fight back. And that's me. I have, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a feisty person. And I always have been like when my older sister would yell at me, she'd be 12 and I'd be six and I'd stand on a couch to get to her level. And I'd scream right back on her face. Like, I'm not going to back down to anyone, regardless of your situation. That's why my, my dad went after me so much because he knew it was equal temper. It was equal kind of, you want to like square up, I'll square up. So <laughs> I never learned to not do that. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, and when I graduated high school, that was kind of like, they finally realized that they weren't really parenting at the point, but they had completely stopped any sort of parenting. So I was on my own. I went to, I went to art school, which everyone thought was stupid because it was 2005. And, um, it was just like, I was, they always told me to like, you're not going to do anything with your degree. You need to get a job. You need to work through college. Neither of my sisters had to work while they were in college. I was the only one that had to. So I was working downtown, like 30 hours a week, having four classes and busting my ass. And I'd say that everything changed when I was 23, when my grandparents died. So they died within six months of each other in 2011. And that's pretty much the turning point of my entire life. Like 15 was a big one. And that happened almost, like, I didn't expect that to happen, but it did. When my grandpa died in March of 2011, it was a shock to the entire family. And um, my mother and older sister blamed my grandma because she'd had a stroke a couple weeks before, a couple months before. And they're like, the stress of this killed him. And so they blamed her, which is so terrible. And so she died six months later. I was dealing with a burgeoning drug problem. So when they died, it was like, oh, cool. 
let's just do more drugs. And also, like, they were the only reason that we kind of, like, kept everything together. Like, we wanted to keep our grandparents' esteem of us. Like, I wanted them to still think I was a good person. So I tried to hide all the things I was doing, even though I'm sure they knew. And so when they died, it was like, I don't have to do that for anybody. Nobody cares about me anymore. The only people that ever gave two shits about me are dead. And they're never coming back. And the whole family hates us. And they've all been turned away. They all turned on us because of my mom. My mom took my grandfather's death as a personal affront. It was, it caused so much rage in her that she, that he died. And so like, she, she wants so much. She's like, I think you're responsible for his death because you didn't help it up with grandma. And it's like, that's logical. <laughs> That makes a shit ton of sense, lady. Keep coming with the zingers. And just, it was so, so painful to have all these people just, like, turn on you. So, like, when we went to my grandma's funeral, like, we walk into the room, and everybody is glaring at us. And me and my your sister are just like, damn, dude, this is the worst day, as is. Like, this doesn't need any help to be a crappy day. But... Just the smear campaign was complete and encompassing. So that was September of 2011. And we lived in my dad's one room apartment, like one bedroom apartment. Me and my younger sister lived with my dad. And we were like 10 miles from the house that my family grew up in. And um, he wanted to move in with his girlfriend. So he's like, I'm getting rid of the apartment and we were like no <laughs> please don't but we had like i was an intern at the time i had no money we had nothing so we were forced to move back in to my grandparents house where my sister and my mom lived your older sister correct my older yeah. sister and her boyfriend so your, and, uh, your mom's boyfriend or your sister's boyfriend older sister's boyfriend okay so we were forced to move back in and they hated us so, openly. So before we get to talking about this part of your life here, you said that you had a burgeoning, I think that I said it properly, drug problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of drugs were you taking? So I was really into raving and so I did a lot of ecstasy. It was more... Um, the relaxation that I never got. I never, when I was rolling, I didn't have to worry about anything. I didn't have to worry about where my younger sister was. I was in charge of her from a very young age. Like I didn't have to worry about me or what was going on. I didn't have to be on guard. I didn't have to be anything but who I was. And so while this drug made me feel so good, it made me feel relaxed. And this is how I learned I had an affinity for methy pills, was that for some reason my high high energy would be counterbalanced. <laughs> it would chill me out. It's so weird. And that's why I can never do Adderall. It's like, I've never touched that stuff. I can't do it. I know. And... um yeah, I would just, we partied for three years. So we started 
my younger sister and I together um, in July of 2009, and I stopped partying in April of 2012. And in that time, just especially for me, like I never switched to drinking because I was like, why? <laughs> That's not going to get me where I want. And I needed this chemical to give me a break, especially when everyone was dying and the whole family was against us. We had nothing and no one. And I, it was like a small three hour interval before the next one. Eh, hour and a half, two hours, depending <laughs> towards the end. And, um, just, I stopped partying because I was finishing school and I had my amazing internship that was just, I was working for a sports team and I love sports. And so it was truly a dream job. And I, I couldn't go to work at a 1 PM game when I come home at 7 AM that morning. Like I'm not, my brain is not in my head anymore. <laughs> I can't do it. So, um, that's the only reason I stopped partying and stopped doing drugs was because I, I had to, and I haven't done ecstasy since March of 2014. And I'm very proud of that. I never did anything much else at parties, but like, I didn't kind of go into other stuff, which was probably helpful in the end. So I interrupted you there. Let's go back to you being in the house with your mom and your sister, your older sister and your sister's boyfriend. Oh boy. It was torturous. Um, neither of us, we didn't talk to them for like a year and a half. Like we were just passing ships in the same house. And like, sometimes my mom would have these blow ups over something and we would just take it. Like when we moved in, the house had four rooms and they're like, you guys can't have a room of your own because I say so. So we had to sleep in the same room. And so we had one twin bed in like a nook in the wall and my full in a corner and tried to fit two people's worth of stuff. She's coming from college and they thought it was the funniest, greatest thing to see us to put us in the a same room as adults, even though we had a spare room just sitting there. Like in order for my younger sister to get that room, we had to clean it out, sell the stuff in the room, fix it up, and then she could sleep in it. Like, and that was only like three years later, four years later. So we, I guess the word we use, we gray rocked with the best of them. Like they knew after having several fights with us, that we weren't people to back down, but we weren't going to people who started shit. Like, I'm not going to start something with you, but I'm sure it's all going to finish it. So if you want to come at me, that's your choice, but I'm not going to start shit with you. And for six years, that's what we did. We, I was trying to find a good job and get out of the house. That was the goal. So for the next six years, all I focused on was working and getting my career off the ground. I was working for tech companies in the city and throughout the Bay Area at the time. And um, all of this kind of, all my, 
my my trauma from my childhood I had kind of buried because everything that happened with my grandparents and all the drug use had kind of been slapped on top of it. So I wasn't really paying attention to it. And in June, June of 2015, I got a job at a big tech company and my boss was a insane narcissist. And he was more along the line. He was like a mixture of both my parents, which is truly a horrible mixture that I never want to see again. And so I would react to him in ways that made no sense to me. Like, um, it was a job where I had like two jobs and then my coworker moved to a different team. So I had three or four jobs while training someone. And so we have these things called seasons. My, it didn't go well. So all of a sudden I'm being personally picked on at work by a narcissist who is very similar to my parents. And I am reacting to it in such a volatile way, I'm surprised. So like, I'm crying every day at work, like hysterically hiccuping crying. And my friend is trying to like help me through it. And she's like, you're like really freaking out. And I'm like, I don't know why. Like I really didn't connect the two. And it was because of my boss's treatment of me, which is so similar to the way my parents treat me, treated me. It just like hit a spot and it made me spiral really hard. And um, then I got fired. <laughs> and they fired me on a Thursday morning out of nowhere. And it was just like, because of your work performance. And it's like, really? I've been here for three years and I've never had a complaint instead of you guys. And it was mostly because I wouldn't quit and they couldn't break me. Like my parents tried to break me. They didn't do it. Uh, drugs tried to break me, got real close. Um, like it just wasn't happening. So they fired me. And then about a month and a half later, our mom comes to us and saying, Hey, we're selling the house. And we were like, it's late June. And like, yeah, you need to be out by October. And it's just like, what? Like we've been there for 50 years. They bought the house in 1971. It was 2018 and property here is very lucrative. So, and it was a house on a big plot of land a mile from the beach and 15 minutes from the city. So me and my younger sister looked at each other. We'd been six years in this house together. We, we figured out how to take care of ourselves. We figured out how to cook for ourselves, how to make a life for ourselves while living in a house with people that actively wanted us to fail and tried their best to have that happen. And we thought, okay, I'm going to get a job. We're going to get an apartment and we're going to take these cats and we're going to leave. So that's exactly what we did. We had, what's really funny about it is that by the time we were told about the house being sold, um, we had bought a vacation package to Vegas. <laughs> and so about three weeks later, we went to Vegas and saw Mariah Carey at, C at Caesar's palace. And it was fantastic.
it was so wonderful. Mariah Carey was, she's my queen. So it was like, we always, we went like, this is our last hurrah. This is our last fun before we have to really do something big. So after that, we came home very deflated, of course. And I got a job at a small company in the city that paid very little. And we found this crappy apartment and we planned we were getting ready to move into an apartment. And meanwhile, my mom and my older sister had, when we left, the day we left, they had packed nothing. They were in denial that it was happening, even though my mom was the one who put it in motion. And because the house was owned by her and her two siblings, and even though my grandparents wanted her to have it, they didn't put it in legal writing, which is very important, people, legal writing. So it was split between the three of them. They all had control over it. So when we left, it was surreal. And we have the, both our cars packed with stuff. Our cats are in carriers. And we're standing in the empty living room of the house we all grew up in. And it was fall. And the sunset was just magnificent it was pink and orange and yellow and beautiful over the water and i thought like thank you for this wonderful beautiful like expression of love from the sky it was i just i always loved the sunsets where i grew up and i miss those probably the most being so close to the ocean and um i call myself a cold weather beach rat and it fits and um we hugged them like my sister and my mom and <laughs> it was just so cold and I just didn't feel anything. By that point, I was completely checked out. We had moved everything we owned into this tiny apartment. Like I was not present and we drove across the bay and moved into our apartment and that was it. And that was in November of 2018. And for the first time, in our whole life, we didn't have someone breathing down our neck. We didn't have someone actively fighting against you. We didn't have people other than ourselves in the house just grinding you down every day. And the problem with that is that um, you do it to yourself. So when I left them, my brain was still in that house. My emotions and all my hurt were still in that house. So even though I didn't have them around me anymore, I became my own abuser. So my mental state and my emotional state was just the same. I was just in a new place and I didn't know how to handle it. And it all kind of came to a head at a Carly Rae Jepsen concert. <laughs> I'm at this concert with my sister and all of a sudden I'm hysterically crying. And I, I, was, she, I, I somehow get separated from her and I freak out and I'm like, I need to sit somewhere. So I'm sitting down on the second floor of this huge venue in the city. And I'm just like, hiccuping i'm crying so much and she's like dude what's wrong what's going on and i'm just like all the stress and all the emotion of the past like 
half a year of moving out of this place, getting a new job, my whole life changing. And it was kind of the beginning of me kind of taking a look back because back in the early 2018, when, um, all this stuff at work was happening, I actually went to a therapy session. I hadn't had therapy in about 10 years by that point. And, um, I went to a therapy session and I was like, my work life is destroying my will to live. And they're like, can you back up a bit? <laughs> I was like, why? My childhood has nothing to do with this. And so I told them just a little bit of what happened. And they're like, what makes you think that you're okay with the stuff that happened then? I'm like, because I have it on, I have it cool. Like I'm good. I'm good. And they're like, you're not good. So I hadn't really looked back enough to, it was affecting me daily, but I wasn't looking at it. And so enter the pandemic. <laughs> I lost my job early on in the pandemic. And my younger sister was working, which is the only reason we kept our apartment. And um, in the beginning of the pandemic, my dad lived. I didn't even get into that of living with my dad, like me and him, like by ourselves. He was terrible. But um, he lived about 20 minutes from here. And all of a sudden, during early quarantine, he was just, he would just knock on the door every day, randomly show up and stand in our doorway and talk shit and just like be there all the time. And we never knew when we, he was coming and just like at that point we were having dinner with him like once a week and he would just like rage at us and have these terrible tempers and like these moods. He would bring everything down every single time. And just an emotional vampire. Like you're with him all day and you come home and you're exhausted and you don't know why. And it's because he takes so much energy just to be around this depressing, vicious person. So in June of 2020, we sent a joint text to a group text to him being like, we need space. We need time. We're not going to talk to you. Please do not show up. And we, I have not talked to my dad since June of 2020. I haven't seen him since then either. And by that point, I had made the decision for myself in April to not talk to my mom anymore, but it's not like I ever did before. Like, we were never close. Ever since my grandparents died, like, she specifically targeted me more than my sister's. And told people all the time how I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I was so angry with you at that time. And I told her, I don't give a fuck what you thought or what you think. You don't know what was happening. And I don't care what you think. And I swear the look on their faces is always so shocked. It's like, you want to come at me with that shit? That's your choice. But you're going to get a, a very honest answer. And <laughs> again, I think one of the reasons I've made it through all of this is because I am a mouthy woman. <laughs> I don't let things go and I will get to the core of it really quick. But like not talking to my mom was not abnormal. I didn't talk to her anyways. You know, she wasn't one to call and be like, how are you doing? 
she wasn't one to text. And, you know, even when we lived together, she didn't know anything about my life. She didn't know anything about my job. She didn't know anything about my friends. She didn't know anything. She didn't want to. And the feeling was mutual. So my older sister, she clung to my mom. Like, oh, she'll give me the love and support. And it's like, yeah, she'll support you. Especially over us. But, like, there's no water in that well, buddy. But, hey, go up, go to town. And I told my mom I was disconnecting from her. It's actually quite funny. I was getting all my wisdom teeth pulled that morning. <laughs> and I sat down before I went to the dentist and I texted her and I was like, we have never been close. This is not a change. I'm just not going to lie anymore. I'm not asking for an apology or anything from you. I'm just telling you what's going on. And that was it. And that was when the point when I disconnected from both my parents and I have not talked to either of them since October of 2020. And so, yeah, you've been no contact since then. Mm -hmm. What did you do after as far as, you know, taking a look at yourself and being like, this is what's broken. Like this, like this is, these are the things that, you know, I was dealing with throughout my whole entire life. This is how I survived this whole entire time. These are the things that aren't serving me anymore. How mm-hmm. did you look at those things? Have you had a chance to kind of look at those things? And what are, I guess, your biggest issues today when it comes to life relationships trust and your relationship with yourself so i started therapy for the first time in like 15 years in july of 2020 so like after i split with my dad before i with my i did with my mom and my therapist was really helpful because you know, like most people in quarantine, it wasn't going well. Me and my sister were fighting all the time. And she's telling me, she's like, dude, I, you need to deal with your anger. You need to deal with your, like, I couldn't control my emotions. I was a bottle of very toxic emotion that would just spew at any moment for any little thing, much like my dad. Like my dad had, would get, like, there was once he chased us with yelling around the house because he couldn't find coffee and we told him it was in the freezer and he found it in the freezer and then it was just like these little things that require such a reaction and I was doing the same thing and so I went to therapy and I was really scared about going to therapy because I knew my trauma was like a like a snowbank and I'm underneath it and if I move an inch it's just gonna bury me so I kind of went to therapy like on my knees, just like, I don't know what to do. Like this s- sitting still in the snowbank is not helping. I'm still affected by this. I don't know how, I don't know how to live in this world. I've been on the outside of this world my whole life. I've been looking on, been outside looking in all the time. I just, I can never, I have such a hard time connecting with people. I have a hard time trusting people, of course. But therapy has really helped. 
and also like educating myself on narcissism and um the narcissist reddit raised by narcissists on reddit is so helpful and just like i've read a lot of books <laughs> i've read a lot of books on narcissism and done my own research i'm a i'm a wiki hole person i'm a very like one other thing that saved me was like being a really internal person so like i would just research up the wazoo on anything because a it would help me get out of my head and it would learn something which was fun but like when it came to narcissism i went whole 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 ass because it started to make so much sense so i've considered the past about a year like since about december of 2020 has been connecting the dots is remembering something putting it in the context of narcissistic abuse and abuse in general and being like wow a that wasn't okay b this has a side effect like this and that's how it's affecting you now and c stop bypassing your memories sit with them and remember what happened and be like that was you that was not someone else like we were gaslit from birth that everything that we were experiencing was normal so you have this idea that your memories could be wrong and were normal so when you remember them now under without the veil on top of it you're like okay that was as bad as i thought that was worse it actually has much more connotation now so the mixture of therapy which i was doing about two once every two weeks and then i moved it to once a week in march of this year because i was like i need more support because <laughs> this is rough and it's it's really hard like it's really really painful and i feel like right now i'm like in the reeds of it like i'm having to really understand like my identity issues my just i don't feel like i have control over my body yet like i need to be more in my body and grounded and my anxiety is like gold star like i there was times in my early 20s when i couldn't leave the house like to get the mail was really hard i had to like prepare to go outside and get the mail and you know it's my my anger and depression are so so linked by so many things and so it's been kind of like almost learning how to be an adult with the amount of control one would expect of an adult of their emotions so learning how to communicate like with my younger sister we live together we're in a much that we moved during the pandemic which was weird but also we live in a much nicer place now with our cats and stopping and smelling the roses being like wow we did it we don't live with our parents we don't have any connection to them at all not financially not emotionally not traditionally in any way the flying monkeys that my mom's side did were surprising like my dad he just texts himself and we just block him he's blocked they're both blocked actually 
But, like, it's, it's a daily struggle. It's something that affects me on a daily basis every day. And I have a pretty pessimistic idea of the world. <laughs> well, right now it sounds like you're the wires on my desk. And the wires on my desk right now are all pretty tangled up as I'm talking mm-hmm. to you. And your issues are all intertwined and tangled together. And you're trying to figure out how do I get at least one deal with one of these things and get these somewhat untangled so I can deal with them separately in a way. Or that's how to you maybe kind of have to attack them. And you're also now getting hit from these flying monkeys. Things are not easy in this recovery process for you because it's hard to know where to even begin. Yeah. Because there's just so much. It's like, you know, when you have, if you have like, oh, I have one thing to do to complete this bit of work, I can do that. I, oh, I've piled on two. Okay, sure. Three, four, five. All of a sudden you have this avalanche of work. And for a lot of people that freezes people. It becomes too overwhelming. So Mm -hmm. you're in this overwhelming state a lot of the time. And that's a very difficult uh, place to be. It's hard to know where to go. And even if you're doing something, I assume you're like, oh, I'm kind of dealing with it, but I still have all this other stuff. And then you might kind of set yourself backwards while thinking that and freeze again. So, uh, you know, does your therapist have, I guess, strategies that work or don't work? Or are you just still trying to figure it out? So I had to change therapy therapists in early July because she went on maternity leave. And so I'm working with a new therapist right now for the past, like, two months. And um, so with her, I'm kind of just like, acclimating her to my climate (laughs) you know just I have to tell her all the things that have happened to me and all the experiences that have happened that are just unreal situations and the extent of the psychological abuse from my mother and the the gaslighting from both of them is probably the hardest because your your sense of self, your identity, and your surroundings are in question. So, like, you grow up with this ambiguity of life. Like, that's why I disassociated so much. I was like, none of this is real, right? <laughs> so I'm not experiencing this for real. Have you, know? you ever have you ever asked your friends what they love about you? No, but I can probably understand what they do. Because everyone today is going to love you. <laughs> Sorry, I laugh, but it's just like, oh, that's no, nice. Well, you have an infectious giggle. I do. <laughs> you know, the way you tell your story is, you know, you're just in- endearing. And oh, you're talking about these tragic things, terrible things. And, you know, sometimes you have to giggle or, or laugh instead of, of, of crying. And, mm-hmm. you know, but everyone who's listening here today is going to be like, you're lovable. I mean, you are, oh. you're, you're lovable. And I think all of your friends probably think that too. 
and you know you're you're just a good person who has dealt a really bad hand. You played that hand as best you could. You know, yeah. you really did. You played that hand as best you could. No poker player out there is going to say you played that hand wrong. You played it the best you could and you played it right. And you got to where you are here. And now, you know, what you did is you walked away from that table because that was the right thing to do. And you got to that point where you could walk away. You're self-sufficient. You're able to live. You're able to now, um, you're young enough to know that you can break these things. It's going to take a lot of work to do it, but you're going to be able to break this generational trauma because it's going to end here with you. And that's, I think that's what your kind of, your goal is And as far as your identity goes, you know, you have your whole, I know it's, it's just going to be a struggle, but you do have a whole lifetime. You know, we're in the age of technology here. We're going to live to a hundred at least. <laughs> So you got a solid 70 years left. I always say that they had the first 31 years, the next 31 years are mine. You know, just, I was under the thumb of people that didn't have my best interest at heart, quite the opposite. Um, and I learned a lot of bad habits, but I learned a lot of things that no one should ever have to learn. Like you don't want to know these lessons. Like I've always been told with people when things have kind of gotten crazy or chaotic, I know how to deal with that. <laughs> I am born of chaos. So like, that's why I used to rave because it's controlled chaos and I can handle that. It feels normal to me. So like people are so like, wow, you can really handle these situations. And it's like, this is a skill I wish upon no one because to understand when the world is on fire, you have to keep your head on straight because you have to get through it and there's no other way about it. So relax, take a deep breath and try to handle it. And these are skills I have that I don't want my kids to have. I want to have children one day and I want to be nice to them. And I want to be like, dude, I'm going to teach you things that are cool and fun. And I'm going to understand what it's like to be a child. I remember that. And like, I was a babysitter and a nanny for a long time. So I've been with kids for years and I love children because they're so pure and they just want basic human things. They want to be protected. They want to be cared of and they want to be heard. And sometimes I look at like a six-year-old and I think about me at six and how they treated me. And it just bums me out so hard because it's like nobody should be treated that way. No child, no person, no animal, nothing should be picked up by their neck. You know, it's not, it's not good. And I've had to, I'm still dealing with the, the, the remnants of all these things, but what they thought would break me just made me stronger and more able to fight them. And so I used to tell them when they would yell at me all the time and I would be so defiant. I'm like, why would I be any way else. I am your child. Would you react to this way? They probably wouldn't because they're weak people. They are weak spirits. They could not overcome their trauma to be better people. And I feel like my mom's emotional age is about 13. She's like the meanest middle schooler you've ever met. And my dad, 
he's probably about 17, 15, 15. He had extreme trauma. They both had extreme trauma around that time. So they emotionally stopped growing around then. So by the time I'm 20, I'm a more emotionally evolved than they are by leaps and bounds. And that has it's been a real help. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's affected every one of my relationships. Like I have a hard time with connecting with people because I'm so anxious and awkward and I just automatically think no one likes me because that's just how I grew up, you know, just like going into rooms and my mom has already told them shit about me. And so they already don't like me. And it's like, I, I'm a kid or I'm like 15 and I, I, I'm just trying to live here. And, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a, a struggle. And so right now I'm trying to focus on me and my emotion. And when I feel emotion, I don't stop it. I let the emotion overcome me and I feel it like I never was allowed to. And I try to stop and enjoy what I have because I did this and you're right. Like I, it's sometimes I'll turn to my sister and I was like, we need to pat ourselves on the back, dude. We have 20 plants in our living room that are still alive. These are, these are good things. You know, it's, you know, we're, I love, I'm a writer. I've been writing since I was uh, around 11. I started writing Backstreet Boy fan fiction. So everyone, everyone Did you just say Backstreet Boys science fiction? Fan fiction. Oh, fan fiction. <laughs> I think you should write Backstreet Boys science fiction too. <laughs> you know, it's, it's possible. I mean, everyone starts somewhere. That's where I started to write. And I have been writing for years. And it has all been... For, it's been practice for me to get to a place where I can write my book about my life, but I don't have enough perspective yet. Like I've just been in therapy for a year. Every time I try to write it, it sounds contrived and not correct. Like, where do you start with this kind of shit? So I'm getting to a place. I thought like when I, I, my sister told me about this podcast and started listening to the stories and hearing the family stories was just like, oh, I'm not alone. This is fantastic. You know, it's, you feel so isolated in these situations because you've been told, hey, this is, everything is fine. What you're feeling is not, not it's not real. Everything's totally good, but it's not. And I wanted to come on here and talk about this because, um, I want people to know that it can get better. You just have to be like, I feel like I'm very resilient because I am such a tough old bird. Like I just, I have never taken anything lying down. I have been difficult my whole life. I have fought my whole life and it's still a part of me that things I wish I could, I wish I had fought harder, but I was, you know, scared. <laughs> How was it? listening to me say nice things about you it was nice i it's not normal for me i don't take compliment very well because it's i don't know it's i think that i'm a good person and i think that i don't i 
I don't have nefarious intentions. Like my mom goes into people's lives to disrupt it and to cause chaos and to make people feel like shit because it makes her feel like feel good. And my dad goes into people's lives like a tornado and doesn't care what he causes. And I don't want to be like either of them. And I try to be a kind, understanding person of people. And I mean, I have crazy empathy, <laughs> which I had to, to learn to understand, like, you know, you smell the air and be like, someone's upset. <laughs> I better get myself prepared for that. You know, and that has helped me a lot throughout my life of being like, call, call Nova. She can, she can get some, she can help this person who's crying <laughs> in the bathroom. She can deal with someone's emotion. And I'm very good at it because I, I've done it, like trying to talk other people off ledges. And it's another side effect of being an extraordinarily internal person. Just my brain is going 10,000 miles all the time and seeing scenarios and figuring things out and trying to make sense of this nonsensical world. And, um, you know, I try so much to, I'm trying to understand why I do things and where that comes from, why I think the way I think like I had short hair for almost 10 years because my mom told me you should have short hair. So with the pandemic, I wasn't able to cut my hair and my hair is the longest it's been in 10 years and I like it. And I was realizing, oh my God, the only reason I've had it cut short is because she told me to, why did I do that? You know, these little things that you don't realize the reason you're doing it is because they were shaming you and they were controlling you through little earworms throughout time. And it's like stopping me like, no, what do I want? How do I want to be in this world? How do I want to act? How do I want to dress? You know, I have a rainbow dress that has eyeballs all over it. I love it so much. Like I want to dress kooky and have people not like question me all the time just because I want to be a little different. And you know, the question, the thing that was told to me all the time is, uh, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And it was just like, I don't know, but I'm not that. <laughs> like, I might not know what I want, but I know I don't want that. And I'm just going to keep going in that direction. That's a good direction to go with. And, yeah. Um, so before we end off uh, our talk today, what are the words of wisdom or advice you have for others that are going through the same thing? I guess it's for me, what worked for me was coming to the realization you have to save yourself. No one is going to save you. And it's so harsh and it's so cruel and it's really hard, but you have to be your own savior. You can't trust these people. They don't have your best intentions at heart. Find people that have your best intention. Have those be the ones that surround you because it's not going to be them. And 
your own strength while still battered by all of this, you're probably stronger than they are by a lot. And remember that you just resilience is so painful and so hard to do, but being a tough person or like being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm a pretty aggressive person at times and it's really helped me in the end, but like resilient. Yes. This resilience just like, you keep getting up, you get knocked down, but you get up again. (laughs) You know, it's, it's so tough and it's really hard and it takes so much energy, but like try to keep your kindness, try to keep your softness. They know they punish you for it. They punish me for it every day, but like, I could never change who I was. And I, Think I learned that pretty early on with them that didn't matter what I did. They would always hate it. So I might as well just do what I want. <laughs> and you were not alone. And it is as bad as you think. We tell ourselves to get through the day that maybe it wasn't so bad. Maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe people have had it worse. And it's like, what other people have done doesn't matter. What you're feeling is correct. What you're feeling, what your gut is telling you is real and you can save yourself. I sometimes have issue with all the people in my life who knew and saw things and said nothing. I've had people come up to me as an adult and be like, Oh my God, we were so worried about you and your sisters. And I can't help but get angry with them and be like, why didn't you say something? And again, they were, they believed in my mother. They believed her that we were crazy, that we were dumb, that we were bad, and that we deserved everything that we got. And no one was going to save me. That rope, that this, the sheet rope out the window wasn't going to save me. I had to do it. And it's a cold lesson, but... It makes you stronger in the end. <laughs> so rough. <laughs> You've been through so much and you should be really proud of yourself. And I know these are just words and it's hard for you to kind of take those things in, but you really should be. You fought hard and you're now at a place where, you know, fighting isn't as necessary and that is still inside you making things pretty difficult i assume because you're you're always you're still waiting for a fight you're waiting and your body's still there and still doing it mm-hmm. and it's going to take time and a lot of people have to work with like somatic coaches or or things like that uh to help you know figure out how to get your body back to a relaxed, non-PTSD, you know, non-hypervigilant state. And that's going to take a lot of work because you've been in that state for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So just remember, you're just beginning. And Rome was not built in a day here. And 
that if you have steps backwards, that's okay. Because you're going to dust yourself off and, and go, and the next time it's going to be lower and lower and lower. And it, this might take 10 years. It could take 10 years to get that out of your body. But at least you're on the road to start to get there. And it's little wins that you should count along the way. Like you'll start noticing these little things that, hey, today I didn't react to that. You know, I might have reacted. Tomorrow I might react to it, but today I didn't. I used to not even have that one win, but now I have that win. Definitely. And I feel even like I've read so many books that have been so comforting to me when it comes to narcissism because knowledge really is power. And when you understand where, what it is, how common it is, how the, the signs of it, the little ticks of it. And, you know, I've, I've talked about other people who've had narcissistic parents and they're like, oh, they don't know what they do. It's like, no, they know exactly what they do. Have them take responsibility in your own mind when even when they don't. Like, they know what they're doing because they hide it, which means there's shame involved and they know it's bad. Like, my parents hid their abuse of us very, very well. We had, from the outside, a very picture-perfect family. Like, Christmas dresses, vacations, but every vacation was a psychotic nightmare with my dad. Every holiday, my mom would get shit-faced drunk and be crazy. Like, there's always these things that they know what they're doing is wrong. They're not dumb. They're actually quite smart. And you have to give them, they have to take responsibility, even your own mind. So I don't let them off the hook in any way. They made these decisions to abuse their children, and I have to deal with it. Me saying they didn't is, a, is almost like putting my, it's like negating my experience. I'm like denying my own self and not validating what it really happened. And it's so important to get validation and to self-validate yourself and be like, that was wrong. I should not have had to deal with that, you know? I've had my dad threaten to beat me with a bat out of a car. And I thought 50% possibility, 50% not. Better be prepared either way. You know, it's just words matter. And telling us that that didn't happen is so painful. And when we do it to ourselves, it's even worse. And we, it's, just, it's, it's such a battle every day to make heads or tails of something that is never meant to make sense. You know? Well, we're going to be having someone on the show. I'm going to do a recording in the next couple of weeks. And we're just going to be talking about gaslighting and like the, Ooh. really the depths of it. So hopefully mm -hmm. that will uh, help you a little bit. And, you know, I just want to thank you for being here with me today and sharing your story. Uh, you you're resilient and not a lot of people who went through what you, what you went through are in the situation you are right now. And that's a testament to who you are as a person and you should be proud of yourself and you're going to help a lot of people who are listening today. So, really so from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And from Nova and myself, we hope you have a good night.